Now, the current situation is showing that um, most of the food we do import can actually be grown in the continent. Yeah. And that's very sad because what it means is that it's not an issue of the fact that we can't grow this food uh, and agricultural products that we do import. It's actually right. a function of the fact that there's something, uh, some things are not uh, right, you know, within the continent. Hello and welcome to another episode of the AOU podcast, Entrepreneur Leadership in Africa. I'm your host, Savannah Olo. This is season 3.0, where we explore and gain insights from mission-led leaders across the African continent and the globe. Do you have a dream you're working towards? Or maybe you're looking for the courage to finally chase it. Well, we'll give you all the insights and inspiration you need to go ahead and pursue your mission in life. On this episode, we have our guest, Dr. Apollos Noafo, who is the Vice President of Policy and State Capability at the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, AGRA for short. Today, we highlight agriculture, more specifically, inclusive agricultural transformation for building a back better. Have you ever considered what this means? Do you know that according to Dr. Norfo, there's so many opportunities that the youth and governments and the people in and outside the continent can do for us to achieve this? Fun fact, 65% of the world's arable land is in Africa. Didn't know that? I suggest you buckle up and prepare your mind for all the gems of knowledge we're about to drop. Ladies and gents, Dr. Apollos Norfo. All right, so Dr. Apollos, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, welcome to the ALU podcast, where we talk about missions and art majors. We're glad to have you today. Thank you. All right, so usually on the podcast, we initiate the episode with a small icebreaker. And um, the question of the day is, if you were a farmer and, told, and was told to choose one crop to grow, what crop would that be and why? Great. Uh, thanks for the first question. Um, I would actually consider um, a criteria for choosing the crop. That's first. Uh, and the criteria I'll consider uh, are first, you know, the geography where um, I would, you know, want to grow the crop. Second is um, I'll be looking at uh, the, uh, the relevance of the crop to the country's uh, food security and nutrition. Third, mm -hmm. I'd look at the uh, the its impact, you know, or its relevance to the economic growth of the country. Uh, and fourth, I'd look at you know uh, its market value, its its um, you know anticipated market value, and the fact that between the farmer and the markets, that you know that the, that the systems that support uh, the movement of the crop from the time of harvest, you know, to the market, you know, is functional. And then, of course, the availability uh, of the seeds, that's the input, the seeds, the fertilizers, you know, uh, you know, and of course, uh, the, the, the soil fertility uh, to be able to grow the crop. So it will depend. This, these are the criteria right. I would look at. So, for example, in East Africa, um, you would see that maize is actually um, a staple crop because uh, it's, it's, it, it forms um, a major part of um, the, the diet 
for okay. uh, for most of the citizens. Um, so um, in countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, you know, um, and um, of course even in uh, countries like Rwanda um, and uh, Burundi, you find uh, that um, maize is used for a staple food. Uh, in, in Kenya, it's called the ugali, you know, um, and yeah. it's, it's not just used to eat, but it's, uh, you know, uh, but it's also, um, you know, used for um, for the porridge, you know, in some cases, uh, and it's mixed sometimes with beans, you know, so um, I think it's called the gideri, you know, and all that. So there's, yeah. there's quite, so, so maize would be my choice, you know, looking at all the criteria. If it was in West Africa, I will choose rice, right? And that's because rice is a staple among uh, the West African countries. Uh, in fact, it's um, it's um, it's it's rice, or it could it, it will be uh, a soybean, you know, which is also nutritious, uh, not just for the adults but also for the children. So, so that's that's my 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 response to that. I think you're the first person ever in the history of the AOU podcast to have gone into depth or like, you know, really explain why they would do something. <laughs> Usually it's just like, I do this because this and that. But you've really taken in the details and, you know, that's quite impressive. Thank you. <laughs> so on to the actual episode of the podcast. Um, our first question is, through Agra... 50 million African smallholder farmers have been trained, financed, and equipped with technology. 13 million hectares restored for agriculture production, and 562 new seed varieties have been commercialized and marketed. What major policies and actions, action steps have enabled this progress? I think to the question, uh, Savannah. I think, first of all, we, we need to consider that we... Agra has always taken a position on systems, right? Okay. And when, what we mean by systems, so for example, you have the seed systems, you have the fertilizer systems, you have the market systems. So um, we took a systems approach uh, to addressing, you know, um, uh, 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 to, to achieving these uh, uh, targets and, and impacts, you know, in, in the lives of 15 million smallholder farmers. So for example, under the seed systems, we were looking at, uh, we, we did what is called an assessment. We asked ourselves, why will seeds not get to the farmers? Okay. And what sort of seeds will be, um, uh, uh, you know, usable and will get the best yield for smallholder farmers so that they can increase their incomes, you know, and their production can increase and we can get uh, we can get uh, more people to eat and reduce hunger in the in the continent. So what did we do? We started with technologies. We began to understand that with technologies, we could come up with different varieties. And that was where we did a lot of research and development to come up with the 562 new seed varieties. Some of them we said to ourselves, what sort of seed varieties would be able to grow on the different kinds of soils, you know? Uh, and that was where we did, you know, the soil analysis and, and then use that data and information to then begin to think about what sort of seed varieties we could research on. So we conducted in-depth research across geographies, understood what sort of varieties will grow. Uh, but then the science was done. 
but you know the, the question was how do you get you know for example the early generation seeds you know to those who then grow them from the nursery you know and and mass produce them uh, for uh, for for smallholder farmers to be able to buy in volumes that can be sold and we began to look at what was broken in the systems you know farmers didn't were not aware of these varieties the fact that there was no government policy to back the use of varieties uh, we needed to do pilot testing as well as ensuring that um, uh, these varieties you know were signed off by the uh, the, the relevant government authorities you know uh, like the national seed council in some countries you know who have the responsibility for uh, validating you know new seed varieties you know and ensuring that uh, they are healthy you know uh, for for, uh, for 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 consumption, you know, once you know the yields are in. So we did all that, and we began to understand that there were policy gaps, there were legal lacunas, you know, um, as well as you know the fact that there was a very low level of, of awareness. So what did we do? We understood. We did a systems mapping, understood where the policy gaps were and the reforms that were needed. In some cases, institutions were lacking, so we needed to set up new institutions. There were weak monitoring and uh, performance systems. The fact that uh, they were uh, uh, getting these varieties to the farmers needed, you know, uh, extension services in place. So we came up with uh, the the village-based uh, 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 advisors model, and we began to look at the fact that farmers also needed the fertilizer, you know, and other inputs to support. Uh, the growth of their crops, you know, access to water, access to fertilizer. So we looked at uh, also uh, reviewing national fertilizer policies so that you could then use varieties of fertilizers depending on the seed varieties to be able to grow. And there were issues around the chemical composition of some of these fertilizers. So in some cases, you know that some of these chemical compositions uh, or chemical elements yeah, that are used, you know, to, 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 to get these fertilizers are also uh, chemicals that could be used to make uh, um, uh, uh, weapons, you know, so to speak. Uh, and so, so there were issues around uh, national security issues with some of these chemicals, importing them into the countries or allowing them to be used in, at industry level, making sure that there were clear regulations and framework to ensure that they are not used uh, outside, you know, uh, what was approved by governments. You know, uh, so and then of course we then had to bring in the private sector because the private sector was needed to actually multiply these varieties, ensure that they could sell to farmers, and also uh, uh, get market systems running for for this to happen. And this was how we reached 50 million farmers, increased production, and ensure that these varieties uh, were accessed by you know smallholder farmers so that they could increase their income at the end of the day. Thank you so much for that. So even before we get uh, back into industry talk and, you know, give the statistics and what have you, I, I'm curious to know what led you into the industry that you are in today and, and why did you pick it specifically? Have you always known that you wanted to be in the industry that you are in? And, you know, tell us a bit more about it. Well, probably you might want to just ask about my career path if you wanted to yes. know. <laughs> yeah. I, I think... Uh, basically, um, from the time I was um, a student, you know, on campus at the university during my uh, undergraduate um, uh, degree, um, right. I I was part of um, the students' union, 
Um, okay. Uh, uh, that, that's the first thing I'll say. And one of the things I usually did was, you know, I used to be the political advisor to the government. Uh, and students used to all, all also come forward with their problems, with their challenges, you know. So I was more like a go-between between the students and the Dean of Students Affairs. And sometimes I had to deal with uh, different lecturers on behalf of students, you know, to address issues. Uh, and, you know, from time to time, uh, you know, some, some of them came up with, you know, key problems of inability to pay their school fees, issues around poverty. So my... Um, you know that that sort of you know introduced me to uh, to issues around um, uh, poverty reduction and international development. Because at some point, you know, I began to get into uh, and raise questions as to why are people poor? Why can't people have access, you know, uh, and uh, uh, to to basic services of life? You know, why why what what are the the, the factors that drive poverty, what are the drivers of poverty, and what can we do to address them? So um, my being here today is part of, you know, my journey uh, to where I am today began there, you know, and then of course I went into development finance, you know, and law and began to uh, look at um, issues around, um, you know, uh, poverty reduction, financing development programs that are pro poor, uh, and of course, um, at some point, you know, I got into, uh, on behalf of my former organization, I was sort of um, uh, leading with uh, some colleagues uh, the, the um, uh, advocacy on the Millennium Development Goals, you okay. know, which preceded the Sustainable Development Goals. So I, I had the opportunity of, you know, um, leading negotiations at the UN, as well as also uh, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 engaging in policy discussions, looking at, you know, what, how, how do you translate policies to actual programs on the ground to deliver for the poorest, you know. Um, so, so, you know, I, I did quite a number of things around that and then moved on to, uh, to looking at um, uh, human rights, you know, and uh, justice, as well as um, uh, looking at, you um, uh, 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 providing thought leadership, you know, to drive development across countries. Yeah. And, and my work detailed working with countries, working with communities, working with different stakeholders from governments to private sector to design national strategies, you know, and also uh, look at poverty reduction programs, uh, um, uh, you know. So, so that's been my journey so far. And of course, yeah. that's why I'm here today. Has it always been something you've always wanted to do? Yes, it has. It has, you know, it has. Um, um, it's something I always wanted to do right from when I was a student. So, okay. uh, you know, it's it's not necessarily, I, I didn't get into this by coincidence. Okay. It's great to hear that because a lot of people say, you know, sometimes I fell, I fell to it by chance or it was, um, you, they felt like something was missing within, like, you know, the, their day to day and what have you. But it's great that you're able to articulate that. And, you know, you've also highlighted a pain area, which brings me to ask, 70% um, of Sub-Saharan African depends on agriculture for their livelihoods, and indeed 90% of the food in Sub-Saharan Africa is produced by smallholder farmers. What opportunities are available to enable smallholder farmers to reduce food insecurity by 50% in at least 20 countries? Great. Um, thanks. I, I think this is a very important question. Uh, first of all, um, 
you know, uh, Africa has always been an agrarian economy. Um, yeah. Uh, within between the 70s, the 60s, the 70s, um, and agriculture used to be the driver of growth until countries like, uh, um, you know, uh, Angola, Nigeria, and a few others found oil. And then there was yeah. a need for, for industrialization. So people left agriculture to look for um, sort of um, uh, uh, white collar jobs, you know, um, yeah. you know, or wanting to look at a, a labor in in sort of, um, industries like the manufacturing you know and all that um, and um, because of that the, the the sector you know suffered a great loss you know uh, and was no longer seen as you know um, a, a key driver for economic growth because there was a race to become like you know to uh, to grow industries, you know, build more roads. Um, you know, build more cities, uh, and and um, that left agriculture, um, you know, in the dark for a long time. Um, but now that now that we've seen, you know, that um, uh, economic growth for Africa is is really critical. So uh, the the COVID nineteen pandemic sort of brought a realization to the fact that you know. Um, we we need to do more, and we need to look for those opportunities. The greatest opportunity for Africa's um, uh, building back better post COVID nineteen, and to grow its economy again, uh, to uh, you, it, it lies in agriculture. Now, the African Union has come up, uh, and of course, approved by all member states. It's it's an Africa strategy. It's called Agenda twenty sixty three. So Agenda twenty sixty three. Uh, wants to see Africa become, you know, the third uh, or I think the second largest economy globally. Right. So, so, so here's the thing. First, Africa has 65% uh, of the arable land globally. You know, um, uh, uh, um, is 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 in Africa. That means there are huge opportunities for agriculture. That's one. Uh, two is the fact that um, with the Africa continental free trade which has now been um, signed off and agreed to by member states in the continent. It's an opportunity to trade within African states and uh, agricultural products can now be traded uh, uh, within countries in Africa in a way that has never been seen before. You know, we're, we're likely to, to see trade go up by, you know, by, by, by more than a, a, a $50 billion you know, um, on, on an annual basis in the continent. So, so here's the thing, with, with the ACFTA, which is the Continental Free Trade Agreement or area, mm -hmm. um, Africa has now become, you know, the largest free trade area globally. Um, what, what then that means is that we have huge opportunities to grow more and sell amongst ourselves and improve our economies as a continent. Um, a, a, a fourth opportunity is the fact is is the opportunity of technologies, uh, right. and and one of the things we've seen is the fact that you know our young people are now beginning to to become tech savvy. You know um, uh, the, the the availability of uh, mobile communications, which is currently being used by farmers, you know, has sort of um, uh, uh, leapfrog leap a, a lot of smallholder farmers who are now able, you know, to access the market, 
determine prices for their prod for their produce and are able to sell in a way that you know they they are profiting from the value chain. Um, we 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 need to consider that technology is going to be a driver for for economic growth going forward, and particularly for agriculture. You know, uh, from mechanization, from technologies that help farmers to be able to harvest and post-harvest loss uh, reduction uh, due to technology of of um, of, uh, of uh, that 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 uh, supports warehousing for for harvested produce. You know, as well as um, uh, driving policies that can shape the agricultural sector, put the farmer at the center of 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 you know of uh, of 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 of, of uh, uh, agriculture, agriculture and food production, as well yeah. as making sure that we have the enabling environment for small and medium scale enterprises to thrive. And a fifth opportunity is the fact that you know um, there's been innovation in the financial markets, uh, so the financing architecture is changing in the favor of Africa. I mean, there's still challenges, but you know um, uh, Africa's uh, financial uh, situation has improved. Um, we know that. Um, uh, 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 Africa has about uh, five of the countries that are uh, among the fastest growing economies now globally. So what does that mean? It means that, you know, we can have more access to finance for our farmers. We need to do more around policies that will ensure that, you know, financial institutions are able to lend uh, for agriculture and that there's some insurance to guarantee agricultural loans and ensure that smallholder farmers have access to this finance you know, to grow their businesses from being, um, you know, just uh, smallholder or subsistence farmers to commercial farmers that can build businesses, you know, um, uh, uh, for themselves and employ more people in, in the continent. So these opportunities exist. At AOU, we believe in missions, not majors. This is why we are introducing a new program called the Bachelors of Entrepreneurial Leadership. It is a one-of-a-kind program equipping you to be consequential and ignite a ripple of change in the world. Are you looking to become the ultimate problem solver? An entrepreneur leader that makes all the difference in the community and the world? Join AOU and begin your entrepreneurial journey. To learn more about Bachelors of Entrepreneurial Leadership, visit our website www.aouducation.com. Come lead a mission-led life. All right, so you briefly mentioned 65% um, of the world arable land is in Africa. Yet from 2016 to 2018, Africa imported 85% of its uh, food from outside the continent, leading to an annual food import bill of $35 billion, uh, which is forecast to reach $110 billion by 2025. So in your opinion, what are the major causes of this challenge, um, of this challenging situation and why is the bill still growing? I mean, I, I think you already touched on some of these issues and the things that they need to do to rectify it. But maybe you can highlight a, a bit more, um, you know, causes for what's happening. So you're, you're very correct. Now, the current situation is showing that um, most of the food we do import can actually be grown in the continent. Yeah. Um, and, and that's very sad because then what it means is that it's not an issue of the fact that we can't grow this uh, uh, food uh, and agricultural products, excuse me, that we do import. It's actually right. a function of the fact that there's something, uh, some things are not uh, right, you know, within the continent. First is the enabling environment. We need right. to fix the enabling environment. That means that 
government policies and actions must protect and support the growth of farmers and ensure that farmers have access to inputs, you know, have access to markets, you know, um, and are able to move their goods. Uh, and I think the, the critical part of this is around trade. So with the African continental free trade area now in play, uh, there's an opportunity to address non-tariff barriers. You know, so one of the greatest challenges is the non-tariff barriers, not even the tariff okay. barriers. So yeah. non-tariff barriers. And the non-tariff barriers is as a result of policy unpredictability. So governments okay. must consider policy predictability as a critical pathway to ensuring uh, um, uh, trade for food and agricultural products within the continent. And the ACFTA provides the platform to negotiating these non-tariff barriers that we need to address amongst member states uh, in the continent. A second, or rather a third, is the, the fact that um, access to finance has been very weak. And, and because of that, it's, it's costing more to produce or to grow crops within the continent than it is outside. So what does that mean? It means that we need to rethink, you know, um, uh, 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 the, the policies that support um, homegrown private sectors, particularly right. small and medium enterprises. Africa's growth is going to depend a lot on our SMEs. So we need to ensure that our SMEs are supported with the right access to finance, strengthening their capacity, the right policies that will support them to thrive and access to markets, you know, then that way we will reduce import and Africa could become a net exporter of food okay. uh, globally. Uh, and I think we, we also need to look at the trade rules, you know, um, I mean, for the first time now, we now have an African um, uh, and a woman for that matter, who's going to be the director general for the World Trade Organization. It's yeah. an opportunity to rethink the trade rules, you know, uh, and to the fact that, you know, and, and some of the partnership agreements need, need to be renegotiated to ensure that Africa is not losing out and having huge trade imbalances, you know, which is then uh, uh, pushing the economy uh, 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 further down rather than, you know, um, uh, 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 rebuilding our economies better. All right. Thank you so much for that. And that was really insightful because, you know, um, I think we had a few episodes, I think, in season two. And um, the person we're interviewing, I, I really can't remember his name. Uh, and he was talking about how Africa could grow if only we were empowered enough to, you know, do our own agriculture, do our own industrial, do our own um, textile um, stuff and would be so far compared to these first world countries that are actually taking advantage of what the African continent has to offer. So what are your thoughts on that? So I, I, I'll, I'll begin by saying that Africa does not need anyone else to empower itself. Right. Right. The, the empowerment needs to come from within. So um, the answers lie within Africa, actually. So I, I do agree with um, um, uh, uh, the person you did interview, but here's what I'm yeah. going to say is, first, we need to, uh, um, you know, consider the fact that the continent is sitting, or we as the citizens or, or, or you know, um, residents of Africa are actually sitting on a gold mine, the land. Africa's 
very huge human resource that is being right. tapped and you know uh, uh, um, uh, used outside Africa. I mean, um, you need to see what's you know hap, hap, um, you know uh, a lot of the, the the new technologies, the innovations, you know, the the the, the rising set of entrepreneurs are largely Africans, you know, right. but they are in diaspora. So the question is. These same Africans have been in the continent, but they've probably not done so much or done so well. So I think yeah. the, the, the basic thing or the most important thing is the enabling environment, the right policies to support young people to grow their businesses, to think innovatively. You know, uh, and we need to regain at the educational systems where the educational system is designed to make you an employee rather than to make you uh, uh, an, a, an entrepreneur. Right. The educational system says, oh yeah, you just got to read, get a first degree, go to school so that you can get a job or you go to a polytechnic and become a technician. It does not teach you to rethink about your world and see what you can do to change your world. It rather, th it rather teaches you to keep the world as it is and ensure that you're just going to be another agent to keep the status quo going, which keeps you poor and keep others rich. So there needs to be that change, you know, um, uh, from orientation to educational systems to the right enabling environment and policies that will make Africa empower itself and grow. We've got a lot of young people who have ideas, who have innovations, um, and who are doing startups. You know, um, it's taking philanthropies, you know, or, um, um, you know, uh, very few private sector leaders mm -hmm. who are supporting this innovation and growth of young people. But it needs to be a government enabling uh, an environment that will allow young people thrive and not seek those opportunities outside the continent. Okay, so I guess you've highlighted, um, you know, some of the challenges that governments must overcome. So I hope you're ready for this next question. Are you? I hope so. <laughs> so if Agro was founded today, how can it build more resilient institutions and inclusive agricultural transformation? Um, we're looking at this from a perspective of um, inspiration from the former UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan, um, called for a uniquely African green revolution to improve smallholder farm productivity while preserving the environment Agro was founded in 2006 through a partnership through the Rockefeller Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as you are aware. You are the vice president. <laughs> so if Agro was founded today and you are the boss, you are the big boss, how can it build more resilient institutions and inclusive agricultural transformation? Um, I, I mean, that's th this is really, um, um, you know, very interesting because actually that's what we're, we're currently discussing now uh, at Agro. Right. Um, we're, okay. we're, we're looking at a new strategy that will, uh, you know, help us um, contribute to achieving uh, a zero hunger and, you know, ending extreme poverty by 2030 okay. in line okay. with the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, for, for, for AGRA, you know, we will consider, we do consider resilience, right. you know, as a critical issue. And... Um, uh, the, the pandemic that is still persisting today, you know, has taught us le lessons that, you know, we thought we had learned, but, you know, 
Um, and of course, um, what's happening in today's world has shown us that we're, we're, we're sort of, you know, learning new lessons from the pandemic. And the way, you know, we will build more resilient institutions is to consider the underlying purpose, you know, and outcomes that an institution wants to see at the end of the day. So um, uh, building resilience into the policies that regulate the institutions, um, building resilience through human capacity development and building resilience through technologies and innovations that would drive inclusive agricultural transformation is one way to go. A second is around ensuring that institutions have the right data and evidence to make the right decisions uh, at the right time. So that means okay. that we will consider looking at, you know, um, uh, building evidence for decision making and uh, strengthening the capacity of, of institutions to have very clear monitoring uh, and data systems that are up to date, that are driven by technology, the right human resource to be able to make the right decision and inform investments. A third is to consider investments that drive and catalyze uh, uh, inclusive agricultural transformation. What does that mean? It means that we need to look at a, a, um, a, a review of you know, how governments um, uh, spend and where they spend. And, and what that means is that we will continue to look at um, uh, models of policy prioritization. Because, so for example, if you, one way to define a budget is to look at uh, policy priorities expressed in figures, right? Because a budget is a reflection of what a government has prioritized. So what that means is that we will be making sure that we're building a body of evidence. These institutions have the right body of evidence and are able to use that to determine what sort of investments that they are going to make and drive those investments for inclusive agricultural transformation. You know, and fourth is around inclusivity itself. Now, the, the concept of inclusivity started out as an idea, you know, but you know we will give credit to um, to to the uh, to, to to those who have led you know gender and development you know uh, over time you know from from the 90s to when we saw the Beijing Conference of 2005 you know and of course uh, to um, uh, to to what we see now to the broader activity which includes you know for example that all stakeholders are involved in the process so we will be considering inclusive okay. models you know to ensure that um, everyone from the farmer to the private sector to government to civil society organizations to the people you know um, are considered in whatever policy and programs that will drive agricultural transformation uh, going forward. You know, and I think um, one more around institutions, building resilient institutions, is to look at uh, policy predictability for trade, you know, and markets. Because people want to get into markets that are predictable. Private sector want to be able to, they want to be sure that, you know, uh, that as they produce and as they, you know, buy from the farmers, you know, uh, all the aggregators, that uh, they are not going to get shocks in the market because these shocks are going to be there. So some of these um, uh, um, policies should be able to um, help uh, uh, the, the, the private sector to predict, make decisions at the right time and move produce to the right places. So I, I think 
these are some of the things that you know um, Agra will consider as we go towards uh, 2030. Great, thank you so much. So we've talked about what inclusive agricultural transformation for building back better um, is all about, the opportunities that we need to explore around that. We've also looked at the other side of the coin where you know we're talking about the challenges and you know, ways to overcome that and things governments need to do to empower their people and, you know, things Africa need to do for themselves, within themselves, to build um, each other. And, you know, we have 47 out of 54 African countries listening in on um, our podcast. And I just want to ask, are there any last words that you'd like to, you know, give young African listening? And, and you know, what, what, what last parting shot would you like to you know, give us on the AOE podcast for this episode. Great, uh, thanks. So, so here's the thing. Um, we are sitting, you know, as uh, globally, Africa is, um, is, is, is seen as, you know, uh, the darling that everyone wants to dance with at the party, right? Okay. Um, so, uh, and now, Africa has an opportunity to choose who, you know, she wants to dance with. Um, we're not just going to accept anyone who wants to dance with us. Um, we we want we 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 have the opportunity to make our choice. And there are three things um, in, in considering who to dance with. Right. We need to consider what sort of partnerships can we make as Africa, you know, to uh, to to drive our, our economic growth and development. We're not going to continue with partnerships that suck up our resources and leave us dry. Second is, we have the youngest population globally. Right. Uh, the average age of the African is 19. What does that mean? Um, and between, uh, uh, according to the, to the African Union, uh, uh, our definition of youth is between 15 and 35. And that's right. about 75% of Africa's population. For, for the UN, it's between 15 and 24. That's about 60% of Africa's population. So we have a huge opportunity of young human resource that can take us to the next level and make us to become a global leader you know, in, in, uh, in, in, in world uh, economic growth. Um, a third thing that we need to consider is the fact that technologies are now being developed within the continent. We must ensure that we have the right policies, the enabling environment, and of course, the, the, the financing to achieve those innovations and technologies at scale. There are pockets of successes, but achieving at scale is difficult to find. And we do have an opportunity to support our young people to drive their innovations and technology to scale, not to create jobs, so to speak, but to create opportunities for, for uh, 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 increasing wealth and incomes for, 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 for Africans and ensuring that we are driving or we are lifting people out of poverty you know, uh, uh, for, for, uh, by, by what we do with these technologies. And, and what that means is that as far as agriculture is concerned, we have these opportunities. The young should consider that agriculture is big business. You know, um, um, I'm sure you've heard this saying that 
you know, you may you may need a doctor once in a month. You may you right. may need a lawyer once in your lifetime. But you're going to need the farmer for breakfast, for lunch, and dinner. <laughs> That's a brilliant way to close it. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. We hope this will be the last that we hear of Dr. Nwafo. Um, thank you so much for being with us today and thank you for joining us on the ALB podcast and giving us so much insight on you know what you do and the knowledge that you have on the industry that you're in. Um, hopefully, um, people will heed your advice and listen to the opportunities that we have for you know inclusive agricultural transformation in Africa and, you know, we strive for a better Africa for ourselves. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. We just had Dr. Apollos Nwafo of Agra, whose mission is to have inclusive agricultural transformation to building back better. What is your mission and what are you doing to achieve it? At AOU, we believe in supporting young leaders as they declare their mission and embark on their journey to achieve it. If you already have a mission or feel like you're ready to declare your mission, then AOU is the place for you. Visit our website, www.aoueducation.com to apply to AOU. Remember, you can tune into our podcast on Spotify, Anchor, and Apple Podcasts. This is the AOU podcast, entrepreneur leadership in Africa, real stories, real experiences.